We're going to be reading this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 13, following the lectionary. But I want us to keep those verses from Acts 7 and the beginning part of, of chapter 8 in view as we do so. I'd also like to, to invite you to consider this question this morning. Um, who in your life has modeled Jesus to you? Who has modeled Jesus to you? It could be um, somebody from, from when you were a child, it could be a parent, it could be a, a sibling, um, it could be a, a professor. Maybe you um, went through a time in your life when you, when you walked away from the faith or when you, uh, the word deconstruction gets sort of thrown around, deconstructed your faith. Maybe it was a, a college professor who sort of helped you um, and modeled Jesus to you in a way that, um, that appealed to you and, and brought you back to the faith or brought, brought you back to a, uh, maybe a new understanding of who Jesus is and his person and his work. Maybe consider someone like that as we, as we look through the text this morning. And I'd also like to say it, it could be that um, maybe the person you're considering is seated in the room here this morning maybe seated beside you or um, seated around you. I think that's one of the great benefits of really, you know, coming together each week as a church because we get to, to be with those people who have um, fostered our faith and helped, helped incubate it and um, helped us to think through serious questions or helped us through times of trouble or times of suffering. Um, maybe that person is here this morning. So just kind of keep that person in mind. Maybe there's a, a person or, or a family who you're, you're thinking about. I, when I think about that question, I, I'm brought back to, um, we do baby dedications here uh, with <laughs> increasing frequency, it seems. Um, but I think back to a, a realization that I had on the morning that Jack was dedicated. And I'm going to try my best not to get emotional when I recount this, but the realization that I came to is um, just thinking back through the people in my life who, had, who helped you know, foster my faith and thinking through the fact that when we, when we pray during a baby dedication, we pray that um, the child would come to know Jesus at, a, at an early age. And then we also pray that the, the parents of that child, the family members, would have a role in that decision and in that um, growing up into uh, to knowledge and love of Jesus. And then we pray together that we as a community would have a, a role in that child's coming to know Jesus. And during that prayer that morning, I was just overwhelmed with the sense that there are people in this room, <clears throat> getting off to a rough start, <laughs> who will uh, have a role in Jack's understanding of who Jesus is. The same is true for, for other parents in the room, and, and maybe if you have kids who have uh, grown up and left the house, you think of um, people in your life who had had a role in, in showing Jesus to your children, and what a, what a valuable role that was. Well, a roller coaster to start, the stoning of Stephen. <clears throat> we'll go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 to start. Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. And then he goes on to quote this section of Scripture from Psalm 118. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. 
Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You ever just wish you could get inside Paul's head to know what he's talking about, to know what he's thinking? We can deduce some things about uh, what he's saying based on um, the, the situation in Corinth, right? The context to which he's, he, into which he's writing, the people he's writing to. There are some problems in Corinth, and we can deduce that from Paul's words. But I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, and this may be apocryphal, um, but it's attributed to him and something I heard this week. It's a shame that the Lord, who gave St. Paul so many gifts, neglected to give him the gift of clarity. (laughs) Maybe you've felt the same way in reading through certain passages in uh, Corinthians or, or in Romans. But in what follows, Paul gets a little bit more concrete and a little bit more clear. So let's read through the next few verses of 2 Corinthians 6. He says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots. Paul does this from time to time, right? Recounts these lists of things that he's endured. Labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, this is a harrowing list, right? What is, what is it that compels Paul to suffer this way for the sake of the gospel? Well, Paul's message to the Corinthians in this letter is summed up perhaps best in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, where he says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ... Be reconciled to God. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So it's this message of reconciliation that Paul is committing himself to. And this is apparently what leads Paul to undergo all of this suffering. He uses the word um, suffering or or grief 18 times in this letter. He uses it 23 times in all of his New Testament writings. But 18 times it occurs here in 2 Corinthians. has a lot to say about suffering. Paul is carrying out the, the ministry of reconciliation. And he concludes this passage in 2 Corinthians 6 with an appeal to the hearts of the Corinthians. He says in verse 11, we have spoken freely to you Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. So. Paul believes in the truth of reconciliation. He believes in the truth of the, of the gospel. But it certainly transcends mere belief. As we know, he has experienced life change. If you're familiar with, really, it's the proverbial Damascus Road story, right? Paul, Saul at the time is, is knocked off of his horse, sees the light, hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So, of all people, right, he has an experience with the saving, the, sa- the salvation that's, uh, that surrounds the gospel. It's more than just head knowledge. It transcends that into the realm of experience. I think we can study the context in Corinth and find a no- number of things uh, that lead Paul to write the way he does, lead him to say the things that he does. And maybe we'll touch on a couple of these issues as we go, but since we're not doing a deep dive in Corinthians, I wonder if there's maybe another way to understand 
um, why Paul says the things he does here, why he writes the way he writes. And I want to suggest this morning that Stephen provides a, a model for Paul's life in Christ and his ministry. Stephen, who is um, killed after people falsely accuse him of blasphemy. He's the first martyr of the early church. Again, Acts 7, verses 59 and 60. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He also says these words, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And it's a really bad chapter break between chapter 7 and chapter 8 because we have um, this story about Stephen, but maybe we should think about it as, as much about Paul as it is about Stephen or Saul at the time. While all this is happening, Saul is standing there, right, watching Stephen be stoned, watching him. And then it goes on to say Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So notice a couple of things here from Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 8. Luke wants us to see Stephen as following Jesus faithfully in his death. So think about those two things that Stephen utters at the end of his life. Uh, Lord, receive my spirit. Lord, do not count this sin against them. If you're familiar with Jesus' final words in Luke, we've got the same thing going on, almost verbatim, right? So Luke wants us to see that Stephen is following Jesus faithfully in his death and his suffering. Secondly, I think Luke wants us to to really notice, to take note of the fact that Saul is there looking on approvingly as Stephen is dying. And he hears the words of Jesus, really, in Stephen's voice. So consider, if you're familiar with the story, right, in Acts chapter, this is Acts chapter 7, beginning of 8, and then in Acts chapter 9, Saul hears the words of Jesus as he's on his way to Damascus to continue the persecution of Christians, of followers of the way. But really, that isn't the first time that Saul has heard the words of Jesus, right? The first time that he hears the words of Jesus, it's through the voice of Stephen, saying, Lord, don't count this sin against them. I think there's something really powerful in that. And I don't think, I don't mean to suggest that uh, Saul heard these words of Stephen as Jesus' words, as he was looking on, as Stephen was being executed. But I wonder, and I don't feel the need to stake your faith on this by any means, but I do wonder if at some point during Paul's ministry, he was thinking back through things, thinking back on uh, the atrocities that he committed, the things that he witnessed. And it seems to me, at least, that Luke wants us to see the possibility that before Saul had this transformative experience. He heard the words of Jesus through the voice of Stephen. Consider that fact. Consider the fact that even before Jesus had begun a work in Saul's heart, he spoke through Stephen. I imagine that when Paul writes with such urgency to the Corinthians in today's reading from chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, he has Stephen in mind when he tells them, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I like the way the NLT says it. We beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. 
Paul says, quoting the Psalms, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So somewhere behind or, or beneath this text in 2 Corinthians, we can detect Stephen's influence and maybe even hear his voice again. Don't accept the grace of Jesus in vain. For Paul, this is simply unthinkable. I mean, this is what Stephen died for. This is what Stephen gave his life for. Don't accept the grace of God in vain. So there are some characteristics of, of Stephen. He's full of grace and power, Acts 6-8 tells us. He was doing wonders and signs among the people. Acts 7.55, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He's full of the Spirit, able to see realities beyond the current reality. Beyond his present suffering, he's able to see the work that God is doing and the fact that Jesus is reigning despite his circumstances. Now think about the section that we read from 2 Corinthians. Right? Paul listing all of these things that he's gone through, all of these trials, all of these struggles, and still able to see beyond that into this ministry of reconciliation, this work that's going on on a different plane than just the physical plane, right? Everything that he's enduring is subject to the fact that he's carrying out this ministry of reconciliation. And then Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, they dealt falsely with me, right? They said that I was, that I was spreading lies, but really I'm, I'm spreading the truth. The same is true of Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses. Think about these words from Paul in 2 Corinthians treated as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed. Acts chapter 6, verse 15, Stephen gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. So dying, yet we live. Stephen, even while he's dying, looks forward to the resurrection. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, as sorrowful yet rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. Think about Stephen as we read these things, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So there's some characteristics of Stephen that we should recognize here. He responds to falseness with true speech and with true action. He knows the story, which he recounts in Acts chapter 7, the, the story of salvation history, which he recounts faithfully to combat the falseness of this moment. He's patient, and again, he responds like Jesus in the midst of suffering. So Stephen acts as a, a model for, for Paul's ministry going forward. Let's jump now to, to Acts 9, this passage that we've alluded to a little bit. The next time we see Saul, he is, in chapter 9, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that he, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul is doing exactly what we had seen him doing before in Acts chapter 7, which illustrates really just how far gone Saul was, right? He witnesses these murders, and yet he's unmoved. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, 
Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And Saul here is famously and, and fittingly blinded, right? He's already blind to the suffering that he's inflicting, but now he's inflicted with this physical blindness. And while all of this is happening, God is at work, as he always is, calling Ananias. Skip down to verse 10 of chapter 9. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul. At this point, you've got to think there are alarms going off in Ananias' mind, right? He's heard about this Saul. He has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, and this is understandable, right? Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Verse 16, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We know from 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that God is true to his word there. And then chapter 9, verse 17, Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Consider the transformation that had to take place. Consider the vulnerable um, step of, of faith that had to be taken. The vulnerability of, of love that drew Ananias from his house to go and lay his hands on this vicious, violent persecutor of the church about whom Ananias has heard so many harrowing stories and his first words upon laying his hands on Saul aren't, why have you done this? They aren't um, something unrepeatable. But they're simply the words, brother Saul. So Saul perhaps first hears the words of Jesus through the words of Stephen. Then hears the voice of Jesus, which on the road to Damascus probably maybe sounds a lot like the voice of, of Stephen. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Imagine that he hears the voice of Stephen as he falls off of his horse and is blinded. And then he hears the voice of Jesus again in the words of Ananias, saying, Brother Saul, looking for reconciliation. This is perhaps what leads Paul toward the ministry of reconciliation. And Ananias, of course, is hearing two competing voices, right? When, when God calls him to go and lay his hands on Saul of Tarsus. He's hearing God's voice, but certainly he's hearing others' voices echoing through his mind. Think about how evil Saul is. And Ananias has a decision to make. Will he choose reconciliation? Will he choose vulnerability and go where God is telling him to go? Or will he stay in the comfort of uh, his own home? Will he stay in the prison of his own understanding of who his enemy is? It's only after God calls Ananias to overcome his fear and prejudice against Saul and welcome Saul as a brother that Saul is able to see clearly. 
So God, in a sense, has to deliver Ananias from his own blindness before he's free to go and deliver Saul from the blindness that he's experiencing. What must Saul see in that moment when the scales fall from his eyes? Imagine that he sees his future a little bit differently. He sees his present circumstances a little bit differently. But I I like to think that maybe his mind goes right back to this episode with Stephen. He again hears the words of Jesus saying, don't count this sin against him. Hearing these words of mercy, these words of pardon. And if in the first 10 verses of this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, um, Paul has Stephen in mind, then I would submit that in, in the final three verses, he has Ananias in his mind's eye. As he's saying, we have opened our hearts to you. We have become vulnerable for the sake of love and reconciliation. We ask that you do the same. Perhaps he has Ananias in mind as he says these things. And the Corinthians, by the way, are, are nothing if not hard to love. They're the cause of, as we've already seen, great sorrow for Paul. They're divided. They're immature. They're morally lax. They're selfish. They're easily diverted. And they're disloyal. And yet, and yet, Paul has maintained his level of vulnerability. He's opened his heart to them. And he's asking them to do the same. When Jesus calls Ananias to welcome Saul... Ananias has to make himself vulnerable enough to have his eyes open before he can ever offer the hospitality that will open Saul's eyes. So in this passage in 2 Corinthians, Paul takes both of these influences, Stephen's Christ-likeness in the midst of suffering and Ananias' willingness to follow Jesus and leave himself open and vulnerable to pain and to danger, and he inserts them into this passage and both of these influence not only this passage in 2 Corinthians, but really the whole, the whole shape of, of Paul's ministry. And it's a cross-shaped ministry, taking up the cross, heading toward death, following Jesus faithfully means embracing suffering. A couple of takeaways that I want us to think about as we approach the, the table this morning we probably all have those in our lives who um, we think could never in a million years respond to Jesus. Uh, we wouldn't maybe admit um, to, to writing them off. Um, but maybe in a lot of ways we've given up hope that they will ever come to know Jesus. Can I encourage you that as you're responding to situations in the midst of suffering, as Jesus would, as you're doing your best, as you're endeavoring to follow Jesus and all of these things, that that person is hearing the voice of Jesus. Just as Saul heard Jesus' voice in Stephen's words, before Saul could ever have even known that it was Jesus who was speaking to him. And that very response of Christ's likeness might be what helps that person to recognize Jesus' voice when the scales do finally come off. And secondly, um, maybe you're in a situation like Ananias and you've allowed your heart to maybe grow calloused. Maybe this morning you'd hear again that call to love vulnerably. Even though there's fear, 
Yes, you can keep your guard up and be safe and not risk for love's sake. But when Saul heard Ananias, one whom Saul would have killed the day before, when he hears him say, Brother Saul, he's again hearing Jesus' voice. Would you stand as we prepare for communion? And Matt, if you'd come. As we do each week, we'll form two lines down the center, and you can uh, take the elements on your own after you receive them. Maybe this morning you have, have somebody in mind who's far from Jesus. Um, someone to whom you have attempted to uh, speak the words of Jesus and to follow the example of Jesus on their behalf. And maybe you'd pray this morning just a simple prayer. Lord, help me to love that person as I seek to love you. Help me to open myself up and to be vulnerable as I seek to love you. Jesus, we pray this morning that you'd replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, with a heart that's vulnerable, Lord, that's broken open and alive to the possibility of love and to the call to love. Enable us, we pray, in our, in our hospitality to love, to be the very grace and mercy of God to those who need it most. Lord, train us to see differently, to recognize the areas in our lives where we need our own sight restored, that we may restore the, the sight of others who are in desperate need. Lord, and as we seek to follow your example on behalf of our own children, We thank you for your faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And we ask that you'd help us to love like you love, not only for the sake of our own children, but for others' children in this congregation. And we thank you for those who have committed to be Jesus' love on a weekly basis in the teaching of and care for our children. You've equipped us with a great task, Lord, but you haven't left us without a helper. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, and for those who have gone before us and who walk beside us to be your grace and mercy extended to us in, in times that we need it. We approach your table recognizing how big this task is, asking you to help us to see that you're equal to the task. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Would you join us at the table?